Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Nathan Connolly. I'm Brian Bellow. I'm Joanne Freeman. If you're new to the podcast, we're all historians, along with our colleague Ed Ayers, and each week we explore a topic in American history. We're going to start today on a farm in California's Central Valley in 1941, where 10-year-old Masumi Kimura lived with her parents. Central Valley, California, uh, is a place where a lot of Japanese-American families were involved in migrant farm working, or in her case, they actually owned their farm. This is scholar Duncan Ryukin Williams. Several years ago, Masumi Kimura told Duncan about her family's experience living in California after the attack at Pearl Harbor. She said that one day, shortly after the attack, she came home from school and immediately noticed something was terribly wrong. She comes home from school and she sees her dad at the front door of her farmhouse being beaten by some men in suits and she peers into the living room and she sees her mom sitting really still at the kitchen table with somebody pointing a shotgun to her mom's head. And she knew in that moment, she's only 10 years old, that she had to kind of be calm and go in the midst of that to serve as a translator because her parents are from Japan and they don't have much English, and she could tell these men in suits did not have much Japanese. And so, you know, she goes in, and what she discovers in the work of translating was that these men were FBI agents, and uh, that they were there because her dad was on the board of the local Buddhist temple, and that her dad had been out in the lettuce fields and some rabbits or something, so he was like, he had a shotgun, and he was shooting in the air to kind of scare them off. But that was, unfortunately, the precise moment when these FBI agents arrived. Despite only being a kid, Masumi was able to talk down the FBI agents and defuse the situation. But that wasn't the last time they showed up at the Kimura family's doorstep. They actually came back several times to question him about his involvement in the Buddhist temple and whether he was a threat to national security. But in the midst of all of that, the dad says, look, just because we're Buddhists, we're not a threat to America, but we need to somehow demonstrate to these people that we're loyal to this country. You're, you know, the, our daughter's born here. We've lived here for decades. So in a fire, he kind of takes everything in the house that has like made in Japan or Japanese characters, uh, like things with Japanese language on it, and just throws that in the fire. Even before Japanese planes attacked Pearl Harbor, Duncan says the federal government were surveilling Japanese Americans, who they deemed as a national security threat. And Buddhists were at the top of the list. They believed that Japanese uh, Americans uh, who were Christian would likely be more loyal to the United States uh, compared to Buddhists. Uh, right after Pearl Harbor, Buddhist priests are the very first people picked up by the FBI. Back then, it's perhaps parallel to, say, Islam in America today. Uh, there, there was a generalized fear in the media, among the general public, and certainly among the government officials running the intelligence services and the army, that uh, Buddhist priests and temples were potential hotbeds for uh, both espionage and also uh, some kind of fifth column kind of activity that might happen in case of war with Japan, that they, these temples would be the places where uh, some kind of secret plots would be hatched uh, against the United States. These type of ideas 
were very common in the late 30s and early 1940s. Back at the Kimura's farm, as Masumi's father burned every Japanese artifact in the house, he came across something that made him hesitate. The dad says, look, I have this Buddhist sutra, this Buddhist scripture that's been handed down in our family for generations, and I just can't throw that into the fire. And also, as a temple board uh, member, I've got all of these records from the time of the founding of the temple, the minutes of the board, all the way up to December of 1941. I, this is not you know, my personal property that I can just burn. So he put these items in a box and buried it next to a large tree near the garage. Soon after, they were ordered to relocate to the Fresno Assembly Center and had to sell their farm. They only got one-twentieth of the property's market value. They go to camp, and ultimately they return after the war, and he's like, we need to find that box because the new owners won't let them buy their farm back. But he's like, we still have to find the box, and ultimately the new owners, because they had torn down all the large trees and torn down the garage. He kind of roughly knew where it was, but that box, he could never find it. I talk about this story because it's a story of a family that had to bury their faith and that they were saying symbolically, you know, by burning away all that Japanese stuff in the fire, they were saying, we can burn away our Japanese-ness. We, we don't need to identify with that. But we are not going to burn away our faith because this is what helps us get orientation in this world. And that it's actually a very American thing to do to defend uh, this idea that you can be of any faith. To me, this story was, can you be both Buddhist and American at the same time? And this is one family's way of saying, yes, we can. <laughs> 